Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. The result will not be official until Thursday, but unless the exit polls have got it very badly wrong, India's Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, has secured a comfortable victory in that country's general election. I'll be talking to Rahul Bedi in New Delhi about what we can expect from a second Modi term. But first this week, we're looking at the extraordinary political developments in Austria, where the government collapsed in acrimony at the weekend after details of a sting operation carried out against the leader of the junior coalition partner, the Populist Freedom Party, became public. The country now faces a snap election that has potential repercussions beyond Austria's borders. Derek Scully, our Berlin correspondent, has been following this story and joins me now. Derek, we might start by going back to the beginning of the story or even a step before that. Could you remind us how this coalition government came to be formed in Austria in the first place with with a populist or far-right party, pick your definition, as one of the coalition partners? Indeed. Well, Austria, for most of its post-war history, has been governed by a grand coalition of centre-left and centre-right, conservatives and social democrats. And in 2017, uh, the conservatives said they'd had enough of this. They pulled the plug on the government and they said, we want a new government, we want a new start for Austria. We not, we, this country needs proper reforms. And the 32-year-old, as he is now, um, new leader of the uh, Conservative Party, the People's Party, said, I'm prepared to go into government and I will take uh, the populists, uh, the far-right Freedom Party, in with me. He said anything was better than continuing the um, status quo with the Social Democrats. So it was a very controversial move at the time. The Freedom Party is probably one of Europe's most notorious parties. This has its roots in um, post-war neo-Nazis. It has made no secret of its anti-immigration, anti-Muslim, anti-everything stance. Uh, But it's sort of the granddaddy of a lot of the populist parties you see in Europe today. And uh, this is the second time they've been in power recently. Uh, in the last decades, you might remember Jörg Haider uh, was the head of the Freedom Party many years ago at the start of the century. And he, um, the government then didn't last very long either. But anyway, this new government was supposedly a fresh start. And uh, Mr. Kurtz, you know, got tax cuts through and some other reforms. And he said, you know, Austria was moving. And then um, this, this crash in on us uh, at the weekend, these video recordings involving the current head of the Freedom, or the, the last head of the Freedom Party, And just before we come to that, Derek, what happened at the weekend, how was the government perceived to have performed over the past 18 months? I mean, how did these two parties get along? Well, it depends on who you ask. If you ask the uh, Sebastian Kurz, it was a very well-performing government. It had, it had gotten far beyond its um, far beyond its reputation. It had done a lot of good work, and it was it was a stable government, as he would say it. And you know, eighteen months in, they were already down to business. Many other people were saying, um, "Look, he was he was trying to he would do anything for power." The thirty-two-year-old and uh, this government was ruining Austria's reputation abroad. There were lots of talk of the Freedom Party trying to muzzle public media. And there were lots of very, very uh, problematic uh, references, uh, neo-Nazi references, but nothing seemed to nothing seemed to rattle Mr. Kurtz. He was in he was in the Chancellery, and he was happy. So, um, really, it depends on who you ask. Now, Derek, before the 2017 election had even taken place, somebody we we don't know who carried out this sting operation on the Freedom Party leader Hans, Heinz Christian Strache on the island of Ibiza, and a video emerged showing. Um, Straka offering state contracts to a woman and she claimed to be the niece of a Russian oligarch in exchange for party donations. And the video also showed Straka suggesting that the woman buy an Austrian tabloid newspaper and, and use it to help his party. How did these recordings come into the public domain, Derek? Well, they came into the public domain. They were given to 
to Der Spiegel and the Süddeutsche Zeitung. So there are two German publications and they um, published them late on Friday evening and it's caused a bombshell in Austria just over the border. And um, Mr. Kurz, the uh, Chancellor, said this is the first uh, he had chance he'd have to see them. He had had some warning from his junior coalition partner from the Vice-Chancellor, Heinz-Christian Strache, that they were coming, but the full uh, contents weren't known to him. So once it all happened on Saturday, the government began to f fall apart. Mr. Strache uh, went public and he said, yes, he regrets you know, this drunken uh, talk. And he said he did nothing wrong. It was just sort of talk about what could be done. But it looked as giving somebody he didn't know tips on how to circumvent Austrian uh, campaign financing laws. And he apparently suggested that if he did this, there are ways uh, which he could then return the favour by giving public contracts at inflated prices. So it all looks disastrous. He resigned. Uh, but what's been happening since then is sort of a collapse by degrees. Um, the other, uh, one of his chief uh, allies in the party, in the Freedom Party, Kickel, Herbert Kickel, who was the interior minister, and he's a, he was the brains of the Freedom Party, he has been um, forced out Butler, and the rest of the Freedom Party have uh, resigned in solidarity with him. So now we have a Chancellor after 18 months in power with a minority government. Uh, he's going to have some sort of technocrats coming to the cabinet table, but the drama might not be over yet because the Freedom Party now officially in opposition, threatening to go with the other opposition parties and vote against the government in a vote of no confidence against Mr. Kurtz uh, in the coming days. So Mr. Kurtz could be out of a job and not just the Freedom Party MPs uh, and then the election is being scheduled for early in September, so Austria drift for several months without a proper government. And Derek, just to, to go back one step there, so when this video emerged and, and the Vice-Chancellor, the leader of the Freedom Party, Straka, resigned, um, one would have thought that might be the end of the crisis, but why did it continue from there? Why did the, the Chancellor, uh, Kurtz, push for the resignation of the sacking then of, of, of another Freedom Party minister, Herbert Kickel? Um, well, what the, the, the crisis is that the, the, the Freedom Party feel uh, that they've been double-crossed. They say, yes, their leader did something stupid. He was stupid enough to be in a house with people he didn't know. He was stupid enough to be filmed. But they say he didn't accept any uh, illegal party funding and the entire party is now being punished as a result. They say that... Um, that Mr. Kurtz, the Chancellor, is sort of um, drunk on power. Uh, their leader might have been drunk on vodka, but he is drunk on power and he, he saw an opportunity to have a snap election and boost his own political support uh, and perhaps pull in some of, the, some of the voters from the Freedom Party. So they say that this is just a power grabbing. They say that they've done nothing wrong and that they've actually going to, there's going to be an audit of their party accounts and that's going to, that's going to prove exactly that, that the Freedom Party is the victim here. So they're trying to turn it around and flip it. And then the opposition are saying, um, Mr. Kurtz, he invited these people in to power and they've, uh, they've made a laughingstock of Austria internationally and it is his fault for doing this. And of course, we have the European elections coming up at the weekend, so everyone is in election mode. So the Freedom Party is now out of government in its entirety, is that correct? And, and, and where, where does that leave Sebastian Kurz? How does he plan to govern now? And what's the timetable for an election? Well, we're not sure how much longer he's going to be Chancellor. He wants to stay on until uh, elections being proposed in early September. Uh, and that would pretty much be almost two months after he got into power the first time. Uh, but we're not quite sure if, there's going, if he's going to survive a vote of confidence against him. Uh, if the Freedom Party joins the opposition and vote against the government, then he, he has the, the parliament doesn't have confidence 
confidence in him. He only has a minority uh, administration, and then he could be out until uh, the elections. So he would free him up to fight the election campaign, but it would leave Austria without leadership for all for from now until September. So that's a long time, and um, so it's basically it's, it's we're facing into a very dirty uh, snap election campaign, and it's sort of everyone's going for broke, take no prisoners, and it's just another example of uh, I think for 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 people in the opposition, it's another example of what happens when you take a populist party into power, one of two things will happen. Either you will tame them and they will become a mainstream party, uh, or they will blow everything up. And uh, in, in the case of Austria, it seems to be the second has happened and not the first. Have there been any opinion polls direct since the scandal broke to, to show who might be winning or losing this power struggle? Yes, I mean, it's very early days yet, but uh, ahead of the uh, European elections, they said every poll we've been doing so far in Austria has to be torn up. But um, according to a poll out yesterday, um, Mr. Kurz, Sebastian Kurz's People's Party, so the Conservatives are up four percentage points to 38%, uh, whereas the disgraced Freedom Party were down around seven points. Um, uh, and But of course, we have to remember with populist parties, we've seen it, and we've also seen it with Donald Trump in the United States, you know, voters for these parties, they tend to be so annoyed with what they would review as the mainstream, the political mainstream, that they tend to be far less rattled by certain things that might uh, rattle voters for other parties. So it'll be interesting to see if their hardcore sticks with them, um, because they've stuck through quite significant uh, scandals in the past. So whether or not a drunken evening in a villa in Ibiza and loose talk about party donations and so on. We're not quite sure how it's going to affect them, partly because uh, the, the investigation is still unfurling. We don't know if uh, he, he mentioned sort of how to, the, the, the leader of the, of the Freedom Party, um, Strache, mentioned certain ways you could get around party financing by setting up foundations and so on. So far, two such foundations have popped up and now uh, prosecutors in Austria are looking to see where they use to funnel money into political parties, including the Freedom Party, and getting around uh, you know, having to declare them as campaign donations if that's the case um, this could you know ex- this could be lifting a rock on how politics is funded in in Austria and perhaps it wasn't just the freedom party who were availing of certain loopholes in campaign laws now Derek, there is a wider context for this which you have uh, mentioned there in passing and that's this week's European Parliament elections and one of the features of these elections will be the performance of populist parties across Europe and many of them Eurosceptic and on Sunday we had a rally in Milan where several of the leaders of these parties Marine Le Pen from France M- Matteo Salvini of Italy included um, gathered there but I think the event it was probably overshadowed to a degree by the events in Austria do, do you think the scandal in Austria has the potential to damage the standing of populist parties across Europe? Well I think anyone who I think their core vote is their core vote and I think they're usually kind of hardcore they believe so much it's a matter of belief for them rather than um, let's say what the party actually does so I think the hardcore of of the Freedom Party uh, will probably stick with it just as uh, they do with other populist parties but I think the Freedom Party was you know creeping up 25-30% because it was attracting people who were frustrated with the political mainstream so in in, in Austria but perhaps in other parties the Austrian story is a bit of a of a of a cautionary tale that you may be annoyed with the mainstream but are you so annoyed that you would give your support to one of these parties if they are despite all of their anti-establishment rhetoric are quite happy to go into bed with the apparent niece of a of a Russian oligarch and give them access to Austrian media, Austria public contracts. That doesn't really sound like an anti-establishment figure to me. So if people are, people, let's say, who are disillusioned conservatives or even disillusioned left-wingers who think a populist party 
actually, you know, let's just blow up the system, um, they might be less likely to be attracted across into the populist camp as a result. But I think hardcore populist supporters, they tend to not be impressed by anything negative. They view everything as a conspiracy against um, their party, which they believe is the only true uh, defender of, of, of the, the true national interest. But I think it's clear that the establishment parties, if you like, will seek to capitalize on this in some way, won't they? And even Angela Merkel, you know, couldn't, um, didn't refrain from making a comment on the on the situation or alluding to the Austrian situation at the weekend. No, but you mustn't forget, I mean, uh, Sebastian Kurz is in power because in many cases in the 2017 election, it, it, you know, the, the refugee crisis was still up and running at that stage in a major way. He sort of, many people would say he actually stole the clothes of the Freedom Party and actually made it more respectable to have certain views towards refugees and asylum seekers. You know, refugees and asylum seekers and, you know, the, 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 the big fear of them is a massive issue in Austria. It has become a mainstream issue, far greater than any numbers might suggest. So you could say that the populists have already won because they've dragged everyone far further right than they would have been otherwise. So whether or not uh, Sebastian Kurz can win the next election by suddenly becoming more respectable than his critics would claim he's been in the past is doubtful. He wants to bring in the Freedom Party. So you could say maybe the Freedom Party, a bit like Nigel Farage's party in the UK, once they have their effect on other parties, well, then their job is done. He said, Mr. Kurtz said yesterday that the Freedom Party has destroyed itself with this, but maybe it has uh, it will live on in another form inside his own inside the Conservatives in Austria, because you know whether it's on refugees, whether it's on borders, whether it's on where the European Union should be going, they strike a far more populist note than uh, conservatives in Austria or in other countries would have in the past. And, and how do you see this playing out, Eric, in, in Austria? Do you think Sebastian Kurz will be shown ultimately to have overplayed his hand or will he emerge stronger from this? Well, it's been remarkable watching him the last um, few days. Anyone who knows, I mean, for a 32-year-old, he's very um, self-confident and he has, you know, he's full control of his language, his body language. And he seems to see this as, as quite, it's, it's, he's going for broke, it's a big risk. But, um, you know, no risk, no fun. And uh, he's really playing uh, at the big, at the high, at the high stakes poker table now. Uh, and he sees, you know, this is his chance to take out the Freedom Party, which is what he always wanted to do and bring back the right wing vote behind, unite him behind his party. And uh, for us looking on, I mean, it's just remarkable. I mean, the Freedom Party, as I said, is the granddaddy of, um, of populist politics. And I mean, for anyone who's, you know, mourning the passing of Game of Thrones, I mean, the story of the ups and downs of the Freedom Party. No spoilers, Greg. Game, Carry on. Game of Thrones, pretty much like Game of Thrones without the dragons. So um, it's just absolutely remarkable. And uh, Austrian politics is really in turmoil as a result. We could see a complete reshaping of the political landscape as a result. Um, and the question for me is how much will the populist Freedom Party re uh, survive, live to fight another day? Or if they go down, how much of their DNA will have gone into the political mainstream politics in Austria so that actually they can function on without them? Derek, we'll leave it there for now. Thank you. Thanks again to Derek Scally, our Berlin correspondent. We're staying on the elections theme now, but going a little further afield. India's general election, a mammoth exercise carried out in seven phases over more than five weeks, has finally concluded. And when votes are counted on Thursday, we expect to get confirmation of a comfortable win for Prime Minister Narendra, Narendra Modi's Hindu nationalist BJP party and its allies. Rahul Bedi joins me now from New Delhi. Rahul, I read today that the Opposition Congress party is urging its supporters to ignore the exit polls and not to lose heart. But is there any doubt that Modi has secured a decisive win in this election? Well, 
the Congress party as well as a lot of the opposition parties are, uh, are uh, in denial over the uh, outcome of the exit polls. Um, it doesn't look like it's going to be very much different from what the exit polls uh, indicate uh, or give a few, give or take a few seats here and there, uh, because there's a bunch of about eight or nine exit polls that say more or less the same thing, uh, which give uh, Mr. Modi's uh, BJP party and its allies a fairly comfortable win in the uh, in in the elected House of Parliament. So there doesn't really seem to be much of uh, any doubt, and it's almost like a fait accompli. And it looks like he may even better his performance in the 2014 election, which was a big win for him. How has he done it? Well, that uh, that really is um, is not really certain, but he will definitely equal, if not surpass, uh, the number of seats he's uh, he he got in 2014. Uh, that's according to the exit polls. Uh, in uh, 2014, he got 200. His party at least got 282 seats, whereas the halfway mark is 272. And along with his allies, he managed 320, which was uh, a really startling win because it was the first time that a single party uh, had secured a majority of its own in almost uh, three decades, uh, because India had been uh, ruled by coalition governments, coalitions of maybe 24, sometimes 28 or even 30 parties. Uh, so Mr. Modi pulled off a coup and he's expected to do it again uh, second time round. Now, when Modi was elected ruler in 2014, he came with a reputation as an economic liberal who would open up India's economy to more competition and investment from abroad, and he promised millions of jobs for young people in particular. Has he delivered on those economic promises? Unfortunately, he hasn't really delivered on any of his promises. He made a lot of promises of inclusion. He made a lot of promises of, uh, uh, of employment. In fact, the employment figures are the worst in 45 years under Mr. Modi's uh, five-year rule. Uh, the, e the economy is in quite a shambles, uh, although inflation has been controlled, but uh, the economy itself is not growing at all. Uh, a lot of the figures are very doubtful. In fact, a lot of the international organizations have expressed doubt over the uh, figures that the government of India is putting out. Uh, and Mr. Modi has also been uh, fairly divisive particularly with regard to the Muslim minority. Uh, and that is a problem that uh, is facing uh, the country for the moment, is the uh, divisiveness of uh, the politics and the divisiveness of Mr. Modi's Hindu nationalistic policies. If he has failed really to deliver on the economy, well then what's the secret of his success? How do you explain this performance? Well, Mr. Modi has uh, changed the entire agenda from one of development uh, and economy and, and promising employment to one of uh, a, a very robust nationalism. And in this, he has been assisted to a very large extent uh, by Pakistan. There was a, um, an attack on uh, an Indian paramilitaries in February, uh, which led to Mr. Modi ordering airstrikes against an alleged militant camp inside Pakistan. Uh, this, in turn, led to Pakistan attacking India and uh, resulted in a very dangerous dogfight between the two air forces, uh, which is uh, frightening because both countries are nuclear weapon states. But Mr. Modi pulled off that gamble and he went on the election trail. He addressed uh, about 300 rallies across the country, 
in which uh, the theme was uh, that he is the only leader in India who can really protect India from dangers from the outside. So through a combination of uh, very militant outlook as far as the security situation was concerned and also a very nationalistic uh, outlook as far as the, uh, the majority Hindu uh, identity is concerned, Mr. Modi managed to prevail on the voters uh, that he is their man. So are there implications then in this result for India-Pakistan relations in the, in the immediate future? Doesn't look like it. Uh, doesn't look like it at all. In fact, uh, Mr. Modi has said that terrorism uh, and uh, talks don't go together. India accuses Pakistan of uh, sponsoring terrorism in the disputed state of Kashmir, which is uh, divided between the two but claimed by both. And uh, he um, has said that uh, terrorism and talks cannot go together. So it's really, um, nobody really knows uh, it's a zero-sum game uh, between the two sides. And it's a very dangerous uh, zero-sum game because uh, both sides are nuclear weapon states and have been to war four times in the last uh, 70-odd years. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's a very thin end of the wedge, as it were. And just to return to the, the, I suppose, the economic performance, if you like, Rule, his performance in charge of India's economy, um, and as you said, he hasn't really delivered on the promises made. Why do you think the opposition in India has failed to capitalise on that, and in particular the Congress party, which previously might have been seen as the sort of natural party of government? Why has it failed to capitalise on his failures on the economy? Well, the, Cong the Congress, the opposition led by the Congress party, which is the largest opposition Congress party, uh, which is the largest uh, uh, party in opposition, uh, had, did not manage really to get its act together. It was divided. It didn't really have a firm agenda. And it was unable to capitalize on Mr. Modi's weaknesses. And in fact, uh, they were trumped by Mr. Modi at every step. Uh, the Congress party is led by uh, Rahul Gandhi, who is uh, a CN of the Nehru Gandhi dynasty that has uh, dominated the Congress party for the last uh, 100 odd years. Um, but they were, he, Mr. Rahul Gandhi, in fact, was unable to capture uh, the stage, uh, the political stage, as it were, and Mr. Modi trumped him uh, all the time. And uh, Mr. Rahul Gandhi uh, busied himself with very petty issues, uh, which uh, Mr. Modi just brushed aside. Uh, and he, Mr. Gandhi, emerged as a very feeble and a very weak candidate. Uh, and uh, the Congress party, again, according to the exit polls, is uh, not expected to do very well. Currently, it's got 44 members of parliament, uh, which is its lowest score ever. And according to the exit polls, it's likely to double its numbers, which is, again, around 80 or so. Uh, but it's 80 for the Congress and, uh, you know, 270-odd plus for the uh, BJP. So there's no real comparison between the two. So what now can we expect, Rule, from five more years of Modi? Do you expect more of this nationalist rhetoric or is it possible he can tone down the rhetoric now that he doesn't have to face the electorate again for another five years? No, I think uh, there is more trouble ahead uh, under Mr. Modi because there is uh, the problem of Kashmir, which has been uh, in the grips of an insurgency for the last 30 years. Uh, about 70,000 people have died. And uh, the Modi government has mishandled uh, the Kashmir situation. It's become more radicalized. It's become more militarized. 
there is a problem of uh, the Muslims, as I said earlier. Um, it's quite possible that there could be uh, some kind of militancy uh, we could see arising in that direction. Um, the economy is in a very dire straits because there's no money in the market. Uh, India is broadly broke. Um, the other problem that Mr. Modi has is that his uh, his group of MPs uh, lacks great talent in terms of either administration or governance because it's a party that is dominated by entirely and exclusively by Mr. Modi. Uh, so I think we uh, are in for a reasonably uh, rocky period over the next five years. And then, of course, there's other problems to do with uh, Hindu. Uh, there's a Hindu temple that Mr. Modi wants to build on the remains of a mosque in northern India, which is a huge, huge emotive issue as far as Mr. Modi and his party is concerned. So there are multiple problems of a very negative kind that I think will emerge in the next five years. And uh, it's not going to be an easy ride. You're, you're painting a very, very bleak picture there, Rule. I'm just wondering if there's any hope in this scenario. Are there any political leaders um, um, within Congress or, or otherwise in the opposition who may come forward to try to change direction, to change the direction India has taken in the coming years? It's highly unlikely. India is a federal structure and the BJP controls a lot of the states. It's a, a structure of 29 states uh, and some uh, federally governed territories. BJP controls about uh, 19 of those 29. And I think the attempt of the BJP, and we already see it beginning, in fact, yesterday, they're trying to... Uh, uh, wheel and deal and topple the parties in some of the states. So there's going to be more turbulence there. The opposition doesn't have either the muscle or the uh, or the the appeal. Uh, so it's um, it doesn't. It looks like a sort of a one man one party rule uh, that we face over the next few years. And uh, there doesn't seem to be any um, any credible or any strong or any formidable face emerging on the other side of the divide. Okay, Rahul, well, votes will be counted on Thursday, as I said. When will we have an official result? Uh, official results will come day after tomorrow on Thursday. Uh, the counting will begin at about 8 o'clock local time in the morning in India. And uh, by about noon or lunchtime, uh, with one o'clock, uh, which is, would roughly be about eight o'clock in Ireland, uh, we will know which way the trend is going. And by the later in that same evening, uh, we'll know more or less know the final results. Rahul in New Delhi, thank you, and Rahul, we look forward to your reports and analysis of that result on Thursday. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to IrishTimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.